our challenge uh, has not been our ability to uh, design or build out resilient systems. We, we're really good at that and have been for quite a while. It's ensuring that resiliency is a community and a, and a state and a national conversation and, and really leading, not with the utilities point of view, but with our customers point of view. Welcome to Electric Perspectives, a podcast that explores how America's electric companies are working to deliver the reliable, affordable, secure, and clean energy that powers our economy and our everyday lives. The show is brought to you by EEI, the Edison Electric Institute, which represents all U.S. investor-owned electric companies. I'm your host, Brian Real. Welcome back to the third and final segment of our EEI 2022 recap. Be sure to listen to the first two episodes to hear from speakers, including U.S. Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm, Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency Director Jen Easterly, and other industry leaders. For more information about our annual Thought Leadership Forum, visit our website, www.eei.org. Across the country, corporate and military customers partner with electric companies on comprehensive strategies to continue operations in the event of increasingly likely high-impact events. Rod West, Entergy's Group Utility President, moderated the Meeting Energy Resilience Needs of Corporate and Military Customers panel, and then stopped by afterwards to talk more about partnering with customers to ensure energy resilience. So thank you for being with us here at EI 2022 and making a few more minutes of your time to chat with us this morning. No, thanks for having me. We just had a great, uh, great panel and a lot of good, engaging questions from from the audience. And uh, my panelists were uh, were they were loaded for bear. It was it was clear that they had a lot to say uh, that that was really uh, designed to inform our our in, our incumbent utilities about what customer centricity is all about. Sure. And uh, what that ultimately means is that beginning the conversation around value creation with outcomes of our customers, not solely the assets that we're accustomed uh, to uh, designing and building in our traditional utility value chain. So um, the future the future looks really bright and it was pretty cool to get the different perspectives from the private sector with Walmart versus say the Department of Defense and the Army on how they thought about uh, the value of resiliency. Pretty interesting conversation. So there's been a lot of focus throughout EI 2022 on innovation and the speed of the transformation. And there's not really much of a surprise, but there's a bit of a regulatory lag where the regulatory process and the way that rates are designed probably haven't caught up, caught up with the evolving needs of what customers are. So you mentioned the word value there, and obviously meeting the needs of your customers is critically important, but how are people beginning to rethink how to value resilience? I think the conversation starts with being clear on on the distinction between reliability and resilience, for instance, where where reliability at the end of the day is our ability to keep the lights on. That is That is general asset management, right? Uh, our ability to keep the lights on, we use engineering terms like Sadie, Safi, Katie. Those were the measures by which we we managed and assessed our efficacy for customer values. Resiliency is a slightly different conversation in that we're asking how does the system hold up uh, and how do we operate through uh, and recover from interruptions or calamities to the system. It's, it's beyond sort of the general asset management. It is, it is how do you deal with 
hurricanes? How do you deal with fire? How do you deal with ice storms? You know, how do you deal with cyber? And the answer to that question around the value of our ability to reduce risk beyond the grid is a customer by customer conversation. And our regulatory, our regulatory rate design mechanisms has, has, a, has more of a broader value point of view around what benefits that are deemed delivered. And what we're finding is we're, we're having to customize solutions for customers differently than we have in times past. And so the opportunity that's in front of us is to bring our customers with us on the regulatory des, uh, the rate design journey as opposed to treating our customers as intervenors uh, in a regulatory process, they're actually stakeholders in our regulatory outcomes. Uh, our point of view as an investor-owned utility is that, and I made this point at the with the group, we'd rather use our cost of capital, our balance sheet, to electrify our customers' objectives and let them use their balance sheet Instead of having to worry about electricity, they can use their balance sheet and cost of capital investing in the products that they sell to their customers. And, and resiliency winds up being a community interest, but the value of resiliency kind of plays out. And, and our job is to, is to create the flexibility in those regulatory constructs that gives both the utility as well as the customers the ability uh, to be a little bit more nuanced and move with, this, with a little more speed than perhaps we might have otherwise uh, done in the past when we were just thinking about the bulk electric system. And you bring a pretty incredible vantage point to some of these issues, serving five states. And and as I understand it, you have substantial manufacturing industry. You have military bases, of course. That's so correct. just the, the breadth and scope of the key customers that you are serving are you, how do you make sure that what lessons you're learning in some of your service areas, some of your states are helping out similar or the same clients who also have multi-state presence? Yeah, and, it, and for us, it means uh, climbing higher up the executive chain as we, as we think about strategy mm -hmm. in customer engagement. So in times past, uh, our view as, a, as an industry was we had relationships with the site personnel, keeping the lights on, keeping the gas flowing for them at, a, at an affordable, reasonable price. Where now we're in the C-suite and the boardrooms with those customers asking, where are you headed? Mm -hmm. uh, to use uh, a parlance uh, or phrase that, that for me growing up in the, in the SEC, I don't know much about, skating to where the puck is going to be. Mm -hmm. That is a non-football reference, <laughs> but it makes the point strategically for us that if we can get aligned with our customers strategically at the C-suite and with their boards, we can then shape our capital program in a way that aligns the common interests of, say, our industrial customers across the sector seams from uh, the refiners, the, the petrochemicals, uh, the primary metals customers, um, uh, the industrial gas customers, where the highest common denominator across those industrial seams is the starting point for the investments we make in resiliency because they all, regardless of their industrial process, the way that they think about valuing resiliency becomes an important conversation when we go to regulators. And bringing the customers with us at, a, at, a, at the highest possible level, uh, we believe gives us the best chance to get alignment across the, across the regula different regulatory jurisdictions. And your teams have really done incredible jobs over the past few years, whether it was Hurricane Ida or Hurricane Laura, just the 
scale of the restoration that you all have mobilized, but it seemed as though you also had some really good examples of infrastructure that had deliberate resilience investments actually performing really well against some incredible storms. Yeah, the the downside of of uh, fourteen named storms over the last mm-hmm. five years, it has provided us a bird's eye view of the benefit of resilient spin where we changed our design basis uh, for a higher wind rating, uh, for instance, uh, in transmission assets, the transmission towers, mm-hmm. the, the, the lines. Those, where we made those investments at the higher standards, they actually withstood mm-hmm. the, the storms. And you know, it reinforced this conversation around risk that what is it that you have to believe in order to rationalize first the change in standards. Mm-hmm. Uh, for the better part of 50 years or so, if you manage your and design your system to withstand winds of 125 miles an hour, you captured 95% of the storms. If you believe instead of uh, you're planning into and designing into a one in 100 year event, mm-hmm. and, and that event of a Cat 5, Category 5 hurricane is now a one in 25 year, or one in five year event, then the need for the community to think differently around resilience mm-hmm. um, you know, goes to the top of the, of the prioritization. And it's not just a utility conversation. The need for resilience is a community conversation. Because what we figured out after Hurricane Katrina and the storm experience after that, it made no sense for Entergy or any other utility to say elevate a substation five to eight feet if it was, happened to be in a flood prone area if the rest of the community wasn't Can't also take taking part in a resiliency and adaptation conversation. Mm-hmm. And so our challenge uh, has not been our ability to uh, design or build out resilient systems. We, we're really good at that and have been for quite a while. It's ensuring that resiliency is a community and a, and a state and a national conversation and, and really leading, not with the utilities point of view, but with our customers point of view on the benefits of uh, resiliency investments. And especially for your corporate customers, military customers, uh, I'm sure they all have the the A strategy that they wanna go with, but you know they have plan B and C. So as you're thinking about designing resilient systems and, and serving these customers, how important are investments that give you optionality? I mean, every storm hits different. Yeah, not only does every storm hit different, it, it hits at different times, it hits in different locales and it, and it impacts the, the grid differently. I thought what was interesting in the conversation we just had with the customers was this dichotomy, for instance, with the Department of Defense and the Army. They think about value through the lens of the capability of their installations. Mm-hmm. The Army, defense, our ability you know, to withstand uh, threats, both you know, foreign, foreign and domestic, as the case may be, mm-hmm. versus the commercial customers, the industrial customers, have to think about resiliency through the lens of P&L, and yet, the, the way that they think about and value resiliency from a price perspective and a cost benefit perspective is a little different. And that's a nuance that, that we as, a, as an industry, that EEI um, our members, we've got to be cognizant of when we're doing rate designs to, to have sufficient flexibility to meet the needs of, of both of those customers who, who might think differently about this a price to value conversation when we think about the attributes of either resiliency or sustainability for that matter. So there are lessons to be learned from the, the needs of our customers that we can back into a sufficient you know, regulatory uh, outcome, 
But but what we found at Intergy that has really worked for us and our customers is that our capital formation strategy begins with the outcomes of our customers and then let the asset base, let the development of technology flow from those customer needs, not starting with an asset base and saying we get, we're going to just sell sell that. So we hope that the, uh, the regulators will, will appreciate uh, the customer-centric nature of how we're thinking about our future investments and, uh, and support us with constructive regulatory and then, outcomes. Last question here. How important is it when you are having these conversations with regulators that they know that your customers are there with you? How important is it to really have them be part of that conversation? Well, when you think about the role of the regulator, regardless of the jurisdiction, introduce jurisdictions or others, the regulator sits as a proxy for the customer. Mm -hmm. When you think about the market dynamics of the integrated uh, utility construct, so they're there on behalf of the customers. We can, you know, we can draw the lines of demarcation between the different customer classes. But when I'm talking to a regulator, I'm talking to someone whose very job exists to represent the interests of the customers in that regulatory construct in addition to their obligation to give us a fair opportunity mm -hmm. uh, to, to attract capital to serve those customers. So uh, they're, they're very much an important stakeholder. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us here at EI 2022 and just really the work that you and your team does. Uh, really leading the way forward to a resilient clean energy future. Thanks for the platform to have an awesome conversation, guys. Well done. The war in Ukraine and COVID-19 are just the latest illustrations of how energy and climate issues are linked to global politics and economics. Laszlo von Lazar, president of operations and the incoming president of energy and process industries at Black & Veatch, stopped by after his panel, The New Geopolitics and Geoeconomics of Energy and Climate, to share more about how electric companies can navigate through geopolitics and geoeconomics and how these issues are affecting the supply chain. Thank you for making a little bit more time to join us here in the Hub to chat about this. Thank you for having me. So your session focused a little bit on some of the supply chain challenges that are going on. Do you see that, I mean, obviously there was the slowdown because of the pandemic, but how has the war in Ukraine just made that more of a problem? Well, I think that it's, uh, it's to some extent more of the same with uh, just you have to focus on what the changes are that are occurring because of a specific event. I think all of these things have made us more globally aware and globally conscious uh, and understanding how events throughout the world can have a differing impact on what's happening. COVID really did impact uh, eventually supply chain. It impacted uh, the ability to move goods and services. It also changed our consuming habits. But the war in Ukraine, um, when you look at now what's, what's happening with regards to supply chain and materials, fuel prices are higher uh, and continue to go up and so does food. Um, but metals, which jumped right after the war are now decreasing. And that's, okay, what is, how is that gonna impact us? And how do, does that impact projects? Because all those things are, are base costs that will roll into a project. So I, I think what's really important is we just need to stress uh, everywhere uh, that you need to be globally aware and be talking to customers and suppliers all the time about what's going on and how is that impacting you and have a transparency around that. And what are some examples of the types of projects that you and your team are working on with DI's member companies? There's significant investment going on for 
resilience investments as well as new clean energy generation, where do you all fit in? We're, we're one of the largest uh, T&D contractors, EPC contractors uh, in the U.S. We work throughout the world. So that's a, uh, an important aspect with a lot of EPC projects in the United States and Asia. A lot of those projects are gas, uh, simple cycle, combined cycle, solar projects. Um, and um, and we're actually even uh, leading the way with regard to hydrogen projects, which are similar to gas, but these are green projects with uh, renewables supplying the uh, electrolysis and the making of hy hydrogen, and then it's being burned in uh, c combustion turbines. We're working, we're actually doing EPC and uh, uh, on part of it, and OE on the other part for the Delta project in Utah which will produce uh, over 200 megawatts of hydrogen-powered electricity. Obviously, it sounds like some of these are massive infrastructure projects. How has the supply chain crunch affected your ability to make your proposals, really, to develop bids? How, how has that changed in maybe even just the past year? Yeah, they're very different. Uh, when you look at your ability to price something and the ability of our suppliers to price it uh, in the future, extremely hard uh, as uh, you know as you know some prices are changing and some suppliers can't even tell us uh, what the cost of a piece of equipment will be nor what the real lead time will be until it gets delivered right and so that makes uh, being able to uh, say yeah that this is the price extremely hard uh, and and sometimes the prices are, are changing before you've even submitted a proposal. So you need to have transparency about those things with both suppliers and with customers and come up with solutions that aid the customer, right? This is a, it, it's a, a time of change, a time of chaos, but it's also an opportunity for companies like Black & Veatch to show our customers, the, the uh, utilities, how we can help them uh, in that process in terms of de-risking the supply chain where the risk has significantly increased in what we've seen in the past couple of years. And, and there's lots yeah. of ways to do it. Sure. And this probably is not unique to the electric power industry. I think we're, we're seeing this across the economy, but when supply chains and globalization, things were going smoothly, you had a lot more of a just-in-time supply chain where there was... There was sufficient capacity, and we're certainly seeing this with things like uh, semiconductors and, and chips right, right now as well, where there's a, everyone's been close, but they've been able to source what they need. How do you think companies are rethinking the process going forward, especially for critical infrastructure, where these are, these are important investments and projects you're working on? Right. I'd say a couple of ways. The first is that uh, it, sometimes a project gets structured around that critical component and the interesting thing is sometimes these critical components are what weren't critical components in the past uh, you know low voltage transformers switch gear um, and the other way is that you modify the the deal so that you procure those components earlier uh, and then so you're not missing the keystone of the project here yeah. exactly and um, maybe maybe even done before the commercial terms are resolved under an LNTP, a pre-buy agreement, things like that. So, And are you seeing challenges just here in the U.S.? I imagine it's probably a, a global challenge. No, the challenges are worldwide, and they're the same challenges 
uh, but sometimes they're unique. I think uh, some of our customers at uh, EEI, customers, they've been quick to adapt uh, and quick to see the reality of what has happened in the world. And as a result, they're good customers and we, have, we can focus our resources on them, whereas customers who have not adapted as quickly, uh, it's, it, it's less likely that th their work's gonna go forward. I mean, somebody will do it, right? But um, it's gonna be harder and take longer because there's not a transparent uh, approach to attacking those infrastructure impediments. As we think about the clean energy transformation and, and the vision that our member companies have for delivering a resilient clean energy future to their customers, transmission is a key enabler of accessing more renewable resources, getting it to where people are, just creating more pathways for this energy to go to help lower congestion. It just seems like it's one of the bigger challenges to get built and permitted and done, but it also really is such a key enabler of the clean energy transformation. So what have you seen here in the U.S. and maybe even abroad that, that could inform how we can get some of these projects off the ground? So that's a great uh, question and great observation because it, it is, T&D is the great enabler for what's happening uh, and solar and, and wind development in the United States is, and renewable of all kinds, non-carbon development is enormous. And you know, if you think about what's going on in Germany, you could use that as a, a good precursor or foreshadower for what's happening here. In Germany, they have substantial renewable resources in the north coming from offshore wind in the North Sea. And all that power needs to flow to southern Germany where the demand is. Uh, and so the investment uh, uh, that is going on right now in Germany in T&D and strengthening, uh, not only developing, but strengthening uh, the, uh, the grid, substations, the whole infrastructure is enormous. And the same thing is going to happen here. It is happening here, but where Germany is now in terms of when you look at Tenet and what they're developing uh, and have to invest, that type of investment's going to happen here. And it's a great opportunity. We have a huge amount of renewable resources or non-carbon resources like hydrogen. And it, the, the easiest way to make them fungible is be able to connect them to the grid and to the demands. And they're not necessarily close to where that demand is, just like in Germany. Sure, and maybe a, a last question, and, and thank you so much for your time today. What project are you working on now that is most exciting for you? Well, it's a project I, I mentioned, the Delta project, where it's a real hydrogen project, and, it's, uh, and the economics of it work. And, and that's, to me, that's very exciting, when it's not just policy driving it, but the economics actually work. And um, we're gonna prove uh, that, that you can use the technology of the fuel source uh, in a technology and be successful. And I think we've probably seen that with other cleaner sources of generation over the past five, seven it's, years exactly. of just what happens when the economics and the policy actually align. Yeah, that's a great, uh, great observation. Because if you look at what's happening with wind and solar in the United States, it's, uh, it's a remarkable change. Well, thank you so much for the work that you all are doing to help drive innovation and really just build the grid of the future. 
and for being here at EI 2022 with us. Thank you for having me. Matt O'Keefe, head of Opower and Oracle Group Vice President, joined the panel Residential Customers Want a New Relationship to discuss how today's customers are more engaged in their energy use and how they are looking to electric companies for advice on how to change their energy consumption behaviors. Thanks so much for making some time for us. Absolutely. Thanks, Brian. Thanks for having me here. So in recent years, customers have had more choices over how they use the energy and more insight into how much energy they use. What kind of technologies have made that possible? And really, how has the cloud technology impacted that shift? And probably maybe start off a little bit with how Opower's technology enable customers to access some of this data. Sure. Yeah. So um, I'm part of Opower, and um, in leading Opower, it means leading an organization that's the world leader in taking the data that energy customers have on their usage and pairing it with every other available data source we can to better understand a full profile of those customers and thinking about what can we do with this. And so we usually start first with thinking about how can this be helpful for the customer themselves and pair it with how can that be helpful with the utilities who are our customers. So um, as a platform that takes all of this information, um, we think about how to present it both for folks to go to a website to learn more about it, but more importantly, how to proactively use this information. So when I think about your question, which is a really tough one, which we could talk about for 25 minutes, I want to highlight that in this shifting time um, when people need to engage with their energy at a whole different level in order for us to meet our our climate targets and our grid needs, um, proactivity is what we do the most of right now. So getting in front of people before they are getting a high bill, letting folks know when they should be using during the day in order to meet our grid needs, or helping people think about how to decrease their overall spend by shifting their usage to the times of day when it matters most for the utility and then therefore uh, the most for their pocketbook. So if I'm a a customer or even an electric company as your customer, how do they see the Opower product? And then when you think about your customers, is this something that's only available to higher income customers as a product, or is it really something that's available to all income levels? Great question. So we at Opower um, are part of Oracle Energy and Water. So we are this platform that helps our customers, which are the electric utilities, engage with their customers to change their behavior, to drive actions, and to influence and think about customer engagement in a whole new way. Um, So Inside of the context of of Oracle Energy and Water, though, we have the obligation, the shared obligation that you all have in the electric utility sector of serving everyone. So this is the back-end billing systems and meter data management systems that have to be able to serve everyone. And so our products are there to help engage the hobbyists and the folks that are investing in the most complex um, uh, technologies in their homes. And so we ended up meeting with Um, dozens of folks across hundreds of hours of focus groups to better understand what it is that low to moderate income customers are needing from their utility. And we were so proud to come out of this recognizing that there are a lot of things our technology could do that's not fully being utilized. And so now we're partnering with many utilities uh, to do as much as we can to get proactive. Send folks high bill alerts well in advance of when a a bill is due so folks know where they're trending. Let folks know... um, halfway through the month or earlier in the month, uh, what their bill is likely to be, regardless if it's going to be a high bill. 
give people a weekly update to see how their usage is going and help them figure out how to lower that overall uh, cost with small tips and tricks. Sure. And similarly, I know EIS member companies across the board have been very engaged with advocating for more federal funding for programs like uh, we call it LIHEAP, the Low Income Home Energy Assistance Program. And that, again, is customers who may never have had to access these funds before, making sure that they're available to the programs to be supportive of them. But like you said, that's only one piece. Behavior change is another piece. There's a lot of tools that we all have to really make sure we're helping customers manage their energy use. And it's just been an extraordinary time and extraordinary challenges for a lot of customers throughout the pandemic. That's right. It's a challenge that um, this industry is uniquely prepared to handle because utilities have always had the pleasure of serving the entire population. But it's new folks in this group that we're all learning more about because the number of folks coming in and out of high energy burden situations um, for the first time is, is unique. And we got to think about what they need to help them get out of those situations as, as quickly as possible. And I'm proud of the partnerships with many of our electric utilities uh, to help them think through getting in front of those problems. Energy efficiency clearly is a very powerful tool that companies and customers have to save money. And it's an interesting time here at EEI 2022 where we're discussing all the opportunities to electrify the transportation sector. And what that means is customers who may be actively engaged right now on energy efficiency and managing their use, they might be consuming more electricity if they get an electric vehicle. In fact, we hope they will. And there's opportunities for them to save on their energy bills if they think holistically and they're not paying uh, a variable, uh, more volatile price at the gas pump. But their electricity bill likely will go up as a result of them charging at home if that's how they're doing. So when you think about behavioral science, do you think customers who are engaged, are, are grasping the fact that their electricity bill might go up, but their broader energy bill is going to be less. And I think that what's happening is um, with without the deployment of the, the best customer-facing technologies, folks are not actually getting a disaggregated view of understanding of how much they actually are spending and how much they are charging. Um, and many folks are not, without that information, don't know what to compare it to. So they see their energy bill go up 40, 50, 60 dollars. And for electricity, that's a big deal for a lot of people. But that is nothing compared to the $200 they might have spent that month at the pump now with gas prices the way they are. And so we're working with a lot of our customers to come up with ways for folks to not only see that information of how much they did spend this month, which we can already do, but then potentially pairing it with what that might have been if you actually were using gas. So we see energy efficiency really has been a priority for a long time now. Are we nearing the end of the potential for energy efficiency or is there always more that we can be doing? I'll speak personally to this. I've asked myself that many times and thought, am I investing so much of my life, my skill set, so many hours of my day into an industry that is on its way out? It's a question many of us in energy efficiency have asked. And then you take a look at the data. And we worked with Brattle Group last year to understand how do we as a company transform to make sure that we are doing our part to help reduce emissions as quickly as possible? The broader group looked out there in the world and they saw that customer actions alone, the decisions to buy an EV, to put solar on the rooftop, to, uh, to upgrade their home with insulation and electrify their heat sources, combined with behavioral change in energy efficiency, has two times more of an impact on emissions reduction by 2040 than clean energy supply. So 
we have to do this. Energy efficiency has to be growing. We need people to continue to come back into this sector with great ideas. And luckily, we have willing utility partners that are have policy constructs that allow for them to invest in this way. Um, but there's a lot more to do. And when I think about the opportunities for energy efficiency, it's also an imperative. Um, I'll tell you, Brian, I was in uh, Denmark last week. I was there at the invite of the International Energy Agency, and I was there to talk with the ministers of energy from about 20 of the European member states and thinking about how to actually bring behavioral change in scale to Europe, not in the short term. In the short term, the crisis there will lead to a lot of that change we need, but how to transition that short-term emergency into long-term behavior change and ultimately resulting in making decisions about the built environment that will lead to that efficiency. And it is clear that the emergency in Europe is actually the same thing as our global crisis we're having with climate. It's just in a micro moment here where we can make those decisions. And every model and every every uh, conversation demonstrated that EE has to be the top of the loading order. And so when I go back to that personal crisis I spoke about a second ago, I don't wake up with that fear at all. I know that we're doing the right thing by investing heavily in energy efficiency, demand response, um, and demand side management broadly. Well, thank you for making some time for us today and really for the work you're doing every day with EAS member companies to help conserve energy and save customers money. Well, thanks for continuing to be an organization that brings together such like-minded individuals in you know, in service of us figuring out how to get to these goals. We all agree on the goals. Getting there is where the debates are, and that's what the fun is. Hydrogen was a hot topic during the conference, with panelists digging in on the rise of hydrogen as a clean fuel. We spoke to Brian Gulknek, GE Power's Chief Marketing Officer, after his panel to learn more about hydrogen's potential and the difference between different types of hydrogen and their various applications. Thank you for participating here at EEI 2022 and for making a little bit of extra time for us. Happy to be here. So through the panel discussion, there was a lot of talk about where we are as a technology right now. So the, I think I thought, heard a couple mentions of the capability and commitment yep. that we're seeing now. And talk a little bit about the importance of that piece. Sure. So I want to be clear. We have the capability today for um, for burning hydrogen. In fact, um, GE has over 100 gas turbines uh, with 8 million operating hours of experience burning hydrogen and hydrogen-like fuels. Um, so we know how to do this. Um, I think today, in terms of embracing, we need to really get solve the challenge of the infrastructure. Um, we need to make sure that there is enough uh, abundant hydrogen uh, at an available price point that makes sense economically uh, to really see the technology scale, to bridge beyond demonstration pilots of capability and desire and interest to actually using hydrogen uh, at scale uh, to decarbonize the power sector. And there's a tremendous amount of interest. I would say today, primarily, our customers are thinking about hydrogen as a way to future-proof or de-risk uh, their investment in new gas plants. Um, it really gives them the optionality of a, multiple pathways in front of them to help decarbonize uh, their installed base. Sure. And I know uh, you meant came up a little bit in your panel, but a lot of the you know, member companies, more than 50, have forward-looking climate goals, many of which are net zero by 2050 or sooner. And a lot of them are looking for that new 24-7 clean energy technology that can be really just be that 24-7 always available source to help integrate increasing amounts of renewable energy. So it's exciting about the potential that it has, and clearly there's interest in it. Can you talk a little bit about what it means from a technology standpoint, how it integrates with existing turbine generation and pipeline systems? Yep. 
So uh, I'll address that on a couple of fronts. Sure. First is on, let's just talk about the ability of a gas plant, a, a gas turbine or combined cycle plant to burn um, mm -hmm. higher levels of hydrogen if it's an existing plant. We would need to make some changes to the combustion system itself on that turbine. We've got uh, some uh, turbines that are capable of uh, up to 100% hydrogen today. Some of our, uh, that's primarily our diffusion uh, combustion technologies. Uh, but with more of the uh, premix combustion or dry lunox combustion technology today, uh, that blending capability is maybe limited to somewhere between maybe 20% and as much as 50% on some of our, our products. And we're working to expand that, uh, that over time through combustion advancement. So that's, that's what does it take to burn it in the gas turbine, need combustion system changes. Also need to make some other changes maybe to the plant itself. Make sure that you're able to detect the hydrogen should there be um, you know, a leak, that, you're, you're, that, that your sensors are detecting the hydrogen fuel. Uh, and other things that you need to do on the overall plant uh, to really make sure that you can operate it um, um, safely um, and uh, and account for the the density difference, if you will, of, uh, of of a hydrogen fuel. Beyond that, there's the what do you need to do with the infrastructure to actually get the the hydrogen there. There is an opportunity through existing natural gas pipelines to start to blend in some hydrogen, uh, and you could see some early. Um, carbon reductions as a result of those blends. But at some point, there becomes an embrittlement issue with those pipelines uh, if you uh, start to blend in too much hydrogen. So at some point, we'll need a purpose-built hydrogen infrastructure that can move hydrogen. Um, and of course, hydrogen's only really, its real value is as a stored energy source to be used for those time periods when uh, renewables may not be available uh, at their full uh, you know, rated capacity um, that you've got a stored fuel. So having adequate storage for that hydrogen will also be key. And earlier you mentioned the importance of price and of course making sure that companies can utilize this fuel source in a way that's affordable for customers. So I know that there's, you hear often green hydrogen and blue hydrogen. Can you talk a little bit about maybe what what they are, the cost differences, and how they might factor into a, a net zero plan. Sure, there are there are a number of ways that you can actually um, make um, make hydrogen. Uh, the 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 traditional way that that hydrogen, most hydrogen today, is made is um, either taking taking some type of a fossil fuel and uh, through a process called steam methane reforming, um, you basically um, separate that hydrocarbon into its. Um, uh, hydrogen, um, and then separately, you're left with CO2. Now, in that case, you have to do something with the CO2 or you really haven't decarbonized. In those cases, they would deploy carbon capture with that system and would then capture that carbon and, and sequester it. So that's blue hydrogen today. Probably would be the most affordable of hydrogen technologies today. Still more expensive than natural gas. It's starting with a natural gas, and, and then you've got the, pro the process to, to separate. So, so more expensive. Um, green hydrogen using essentially electrolyzers um, and taking a uh, using a renewable power source to power those electrolyzers and separate water into hydrogen and oxygen um, is another way that you can do it. More expensive. You've got the the capex of this electrolyzer plant itself. You have the cost of the renewable energy uh, that you would need to powering uh, powering that uh, that source. There are other technologies. There's uh, uh, turquoise color of hydrogen called you know where they're using uh, a process called methane pyrolysis. Uh, which interestingly enough produces um, hydrogen and a solid form of carbon. 
um, so that you can, um, uh, as you as you separate the the hydrocarbon, you're not left with it in a gaseous form that you have to sequester. It's actually a solid carbon that can be used. Um, and then there, are, uh, you, of course, you can use nuclear energy to power those electrolyzers too. Some people call that pink, red, yellow. <laughs> there doesn't seem to be a commonality on the color on that one, but also a way to create hydrogen uh, in a zero carbon manner. So for hydrogen to become a meaningful source of clean energy generation here in the U.S. and really scaled worldwide, certainly you all have customers all over the world, what needs to happen? And maybe I'll just curse plug. We had we were fortunate to have Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm here this morning. Um, through some of the infrastructure funding, there's been a big focus on hydrogen hubs. How are you working with EEI's member electric companies really today to make sure that this is viable sooner than later. Right. So um, on, a, on a few fronts, the, uh, the first is, look, um, decarbonization um, is something that comes at an, at an, at an economic cost for, for power plants today. Um, and we believe it's, an, it's, an, it's, an, it's, it's money well worth spending, but there needs to be a path for customers, uh, for our customers, to be able to be competitive. Um, you know, their consumers are, are counting on utilities to provide reliable, sustainable and affordable electricity. You gotta kind of balance all, all, all three of those, if you will. So um, to do that, uh, we really need to see, look, there needs to be some type of a monetization on carbon as you think about how do you put a value on carbon such that you can justify some of these, uh, these, these added, added costs. Uh, so that's one piece. And then, as I mentioned, the infrastructure really is what's gonna be key to pacing um, this, uh, this adoption. You need, uh, you'll need these purpose-built uh, pipelines at some point, storage mechanisms to, to really spur that investment. You need some line of sight to, to, to the economics. So um, certainly we can have infrastructure bills supporting some of the, some of the, some of the infrastructure spend and some means for, for monetizing or putting a value on carbon uh, that helps customers to be competitive while decarbonizing. And Hydrogen certainly has been front and center for a lot of EIS member companies as you and your team are working with stakeholders around the world and you're speaking at events and on podcasts and everything else. Are other people interested in hydrogen? Absolutely. There's a tremendous uh, amount of interest. We're working on projects, um, uh, multiple uh, two, uh, two plants in, in Germany, uh, a project in China, um, in Australia. Um, so there definitely is, is global interest in hydrogen. Um, yep. And places that are facing energy challenges today, I'm sure they're, they want the solution as soon as they can get it. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, I think some of these, to me, what's fascinating are seeing some of the countries that are really embracing hydrogen as a means for economic growth for those countries with a vision to how to become an energy provider exporter of clean hydrogen. Uh, to help fuel their uh, their econ their economies as well. So tremendous interest there as well. Great. So we're very excited to be in person here at EI 2022, and it was a great session for those who were able to attend the discussion this afternoon. But for folks who want to learn a little bit more about GE's role in, in helping move this forward, where can they go to find out? Yeah, we've look, we've got a, a, a podcast called Cutting Carbon. Uh, it's available on any of uh, wherever you download your uh, favorite podcasts. Encourage you to give a listen there. We have five different seasons, all really dedicated to understanding the technologies and what it's going to take to address climate change globally. And uh, certainly encourage your listeners to go there to learn more. Thank you for spending some time with us today and really the work that you're doing with our member companies to help deliver a resilient clean energy future to their customers. Great. Thanks to you.
Electric companies are working with community partners to build the next generation workforce. Dr. Belenthia Berry, Acting Dean of Workforce Development at St. Petersburg College in Florida, joined us after a workforce development panel to share her experience with St. Petersburg College's line worker training program that is supported by Duke Energy. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Can you give us a, a short summary of what the electrical line worker program is and how many graduates have come through the most recent class? Our electrical line worker program, it's pretty much an industry-led training program that started with the Urban League, Duke, Powertown, and many other electrical companies came up with the curriculum, meaning that they have stackable credentials in OSHA, CPR, uh, CDL training, and then, of course, our lineman worker, which is going up the pole, doing those things that line workers do. It's about 14 weeks. So far, we've had about 60 more, sixty or more students go through our program. Out of those 60, we had about 77% complete. Wow. So they have stackable credentials, and 50% of those actually were placed in jobs as linemen. And so we're working on the other ones to make sure that they're in other careers that may fit their skill set. Now, for the scenario that you discussed during your, your panel discussion a few minutes ago, how do you work with Duke Energy to help graduates find these job opportunities? And what are other ways that electric companies can get involved in these sort of programs? Well, Duke is with us every step of the way. They're part of the interview process. So, so they see the students on the onset. Uh, we have subject matter experts who are part of the training program, who actually teach the program. And then any other resources that the students need or that we need as a college um, from Urban League as well, too, they're there. They support uh, their employees, provide scholarships for those who can't actually afford the program. And so they're with us. I call them the forever partner. And were there efforts to kind of identify some of the barriers to participation in these training programs to, to make sure that they had the they might have had the the will to do it and the know how, but whether it's childcare, other services to really make them able to take advantage of those opportunities. Yeah, a lot of that was in the onset um, with Urban League. Duke and Urban League identified what those were and provided the wraparound services from employability skills, career readiness from the back end, meaning resume writing. What do you need? So that true case management of paying electric bill, uh, making sure they have transportation to and from the training program. Whatever it needs to keep the person in the program to be successful, that's what they have done. And during the panel, you and Duke Energy Florida State President Melissa Satius mentioned that preparing graduates for an interview was actually mm -hmm. a piece of the program as well. How do you go about doing that? Well, we have many workshops at the back end of the training program, and that's provided by the Urban League of Pinellas. Uh, which is Mr. Watson Haynes right here. <laughs> and um, they do an excellent job with making sure that the students understand how to develop a resume, what their interviews are. They do mock interviews to prepare the student. Then we have the job fairs. That's when the employers come out to pick who they select, to make sure that they're ready for this world of work. And can you talk a little bit about the recruitment process to work with community partners on awareness for the program to really get men and women interested to get in the door? Well, I want to say it's a joint effort, but Urban League does a lot of it. <laughs> they do our recruitment. They're our boots on the ground in the community to shout exactly what we're doing, how we're doing it. And they have done an excellent job at making sure that they get the right candidates to the pool that are needed, that are in our pipeline, the next talent, I said the next future talent, but those who may not have the opportunity, but will get the opportunity through this. 
Well, thank you for joining us here at EI 2022 because we all know how important workforce development is and really for the work that you're doing every day to create new opportunities in your community and really build the workforce that electric companies need to deliver the resilient clean energy future that they're aiming for. We just thank you and all of the electrical companies across the world um, that we are here and this is just the beginning. And that's our show for today. Thank you for listening and come back next week to hear more from experts and industry leaders who are talking about the innovative ways electric companies are building a cleaner, smarter, stronger energy future for the customers and communities they serve. You can subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam, or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Electric Perspectives. I'm your host, Brian Real. Thanks for listening.